Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk Radio Uh, another one is 
the expansion of Medicaid enrollment, uh, which for doctors means more uh, sources of no pay or low pay patients, challenges to the Affordable Health Care Act, that feeds into another prediction that I have, and the end of Medicaid parity with Medicare. What does that mean? That means that the payment doctors receive for the Medicaid program and program support will again begin to lag behind the pay for Medicare. As an example, um, in my medical practice when I was practicing in the 90s, um, doctors were paid $11 for a Medicaid patient, they were paid $35 for a Medicare patient, and $65 for a private insurance patient. What has now happened with the um, Affordable Health Care Act is that many patients who would have paid the doctor cash are now being covered under Medicaid duh, through state exchanges. And so these self-pay patients who often have insurance and were a pretty important part of the doctor's um, economic plan uh, have been basically taken away. So this means the doctor basically is almost 100% dependent on insurance. And that's it for the very big predictions in terms of how it factors into uh, my perception. But doctors are going to have a tough time getting paid from your insurance. Next, doctors will become much more authoritarian. And the reason for this is that doctors' reimbursement is going to be predicated upon Patient compliance. So I have to read you this headline. And the headline is basically doctors complaining about patients adversely affecting um, their reimbursement. And so let's see if we can get this to come up. There we go, almost there. These are stuff that come up uh, these windows automatically. Is that sometimes you know? So, the headline is Why Should Your Non Compliance Harm My Income? And what's happening is when patients refuse to adhere to deadly protocols, the doctor compensation is being reduced by the percent of non-adherent patients that he has. And this is just mind-boggling. First of all, it's a matter of your privacy, you would think, whether you decide to or not decide to do something. There was a time when your doctor was perceived as being your consultant. He would give you a consultant, he would give you advice, and then you would decide whether or not to take it. Can you imagine if you went to your um, accountant, and if you did not take his advice, his he would get fined. That would certainly change his attitude now, wouldn't it? I think we're going to find um, a lot of doctors getting pretty hard-nosed and very unpleasant about patients' desire to have any input at all into their care. 
and just going to um, this is uh, give you a, just a, one paragraph because I think it applies a lot of listeners. Some non-adherent patients are more concerning than others. There are patients who don't follow simple directions or who forget to take their meds, but others may be reacting to the high cost of the drug or in negative information about a therapy. And they read that they read on the internet. Quite often, they won't tell you that they're not taking their meds or following the treatment plan, leaving you powerless to help them choose a less costly drug or a different therapy. And so what's happening is when you see your doctor, an electronic health record is created, and that record is basically transmitted to anybody and everybody in an authoritarian position who could negatively impact your doctor or you. In other words, your electronic health records by law are available to the government. Why? Because now with the Affordable Health Care Act, the government is a paying party to your care. And the HIPAA Act, which is the Confidentiality Act, says these records are available to anyone paying for your care without any further consent on your part. So literally, um, if you're having a friend pay for your office visit and that's made known to the doctor, then that friend has a right to your medical record. Very interesting. So because of this, it can be easily detected um, you're not compliant. And so people have told me that they'll tell their doctor no. The doctor said, well, I'm writing that down. And the patient doesn't understand the implication of that. The implication of that is, the doctor knows he's going to be financially penalized or his license may even be in danger if he has too many um, patients who are not compliant. And he's documenting that he gave it his best effort and that it's really your fault that you're not complying, not that he didn't try and twist you off. So these are going to become some very uh, unsafe interactions with, with very negative consequences, certainly for the doctor and possibly even for the patient. And so doctors will become more authoritarian. Do as I say, I'm your parent, I'm in charge here. And of course, patients are going to revolt. That's the next prediction. Patients will revolt by seeking alternatives. In other words, they may even just stay home, which, as we know, when doctors go on strike, the death rate goes down. So staying home is a pretty good idea. Um, the next um, feature is that many doctors will refuse insurance. Why? Well, <laughs> why would you accept insurance? Answer, because you expect to get paid. So why would you refuse insurance? Answer, because, well, nothing. So what we're going to find then is that many doctors are actually going to start refusing insurance because they will find that they can't um, influence their patients. The patient can't get their patients to submit to this stuff. And so many patients will end up paying doctors, and doctors will start um, having um, practices that literally don't accept insurance. What is the next prediction. The next prediction is that increasingly lethal medicine will be offered due to protocol adherence. I mean, the doctor will be obligated to adhere to every protocol because he is being so closely supervised. And as a result of this meticulous adherence, we can expect the um, 
death rate from drugs to increase dramatically. And what's happening also is they have this new chronic care thing that means once the doctor gets you forever sick or diagnoses a um, illness that can be expected to last the rest of your lifetime, then the patient will be dinged at least a 20% COVID. And you can imagine when that's going to do a cardiology practice where one procedure can cost $3,000. Patients will say, ah, well, well, wait a minute, doc. wait, wait, stop, stop right there. Because a lot of times people's willingness to submit to pretty damaging care uh, depends on who pays for it. And that's why I say, if you can ask yourself, if I had to pay for this care out of pocket, cash, myself, and make whatever sacrifice it took to pay for this care, which is maybe, I don't know, sell your car, sell your home, whatever you have to do to pay for the care, if you would actually do that, then maybe accept the care. But if you would not sell your house or sell your car to pay for this medical care, you probably um, should not submit to the care. So what we're going to find then is basic routine protocol will become increasingly weak. The next prediction, prediction number six, is that more women will be avoiding prenatal care to save their lives. It's not a well-publicized fact, but with the increase in prenatal care has been a dramatic increase in maternal mortality. That means death of women um, who are pregnant. Now, what makes this even worse is even though the mortality has increased fivefold since 1970, this is by .gov count and by the count of the World Health Organization, death of a woman during the pregnancy is not counted as maternal death unless there's a live fetus, right? Because she can't be a mother if you don't have a live baby. How about that? Oh, yeah. So a lot of maternal deaths are not even counted. A lot of pregnancy-related deaths, a lot of doctor intervention-related deaths during pregnancy are not even counted because the method of counting necessarily excludes the two. So if you do a C-section, and as a result of the C-section, mother and baby both become septic and both die, then it's not a maternal death because the baby didn't survive, hence for the corpse was not a mother and it's not a maternal death. Very, very amazing um, classification and statistical manipulation there. But I think many women are going to become more aware of this and they're going to avoid prenatal care to save their own lives. Now, the other um, issue with, with prenatal care is for a young couple to participate in the whole um, prenatal care hospital delivery routine is about a twelve dollars to $15,000 experience. And to have health insurance that covers it is equally as uh, devastating. And so young people starting out with incredibly burdensome educational debt, or people who are just simply underemployed at rather low wages might decide that they don't want to um, embark on this. And again, with the increasing level of education, with the increasing availability of information on the internet, 
people may actually appreciate that prenatal care is some pretty deadly stuff and not the way to go if all you want to do is have a healthy baby. Now, if you want to please the government, if you want to please um, the propaganda campaigners, if you want to please relatives who don't bother to get all the information, then yes, of course, um, have prenatal care. But more and more people are going to um, stop having prenatal care, avoid prenatal care, and we may even find women concealing their pregnancies, going as, as far as they have to go in order to not have a prenatal intervention, so to save their own lives, not have an operative delivery. And then even after that, to continue and not have vaccines for the baby because they don't want the baby to be harmed. Now that we have the research from the CDC themselves indicating that vaccines do cause autism, there is absolutely no doubt on this issue. And so many parents may actually start concealing their, their pregnancies, not applying for that social security number at birth, instead waiting two years before the child is even documented. At least that way, the kid misses the first two years of shots, and these are the shots most likely to cause autism. In other words, um, it's the shots that are given at or before 18 months that are most likely to cause autism, although any shot at any age can cause autism. And so I predict that more women are going to avoid the whole prenatal care, the whole um, childhood vaccine um, experience, just, first of all, to save their lives. I and mean, the five-fold increase in mortality and death rate is just, it's mind-boggling, actually. Um, to say nothing of the increase in expense. And now I had my third child at home for a whopping cost of $250. Uh, and I can definitely tell you I overspent. spent a lot more money than I had to. Bought a lot of materials I just didn't use. So um, many women are going to figure this out. And they're going to avoid the prenatal care routine. Having done that, having survived that, they're going to take the next step. And... Um, protect their babies too. Because when you have a woman who's given birth with a clear mind, um, she's gonna have some pretty strong thoughts, I think, about uh, her baby. The next thing is we can expect to see the vaccine refusal rates rise. Um, anybody who can read, who's been following the debate, and now of course there is no debate, now you just follow research done by the government itself, realizes the danger of these vaccines for children. And I think people are going to start realizing also the danger of vaccines for adults. Um, personally, you know, I'm encountering a lot of uh, adults, many adults who travel extensively, who've gotten travel shops, and who are experiencing serious wasting diseases. And they've done research on the internet. And they think they have Lyme. They think they have this. And they think they have that. May think they have rheumatoid or, you know, all this stuff they could possibly have. But really what they have is um, vaccine complications from all of their travel vaccines. And so we can, we'll definitely see uh, increase in vaccine refusal um, by parents on behalf of their children. I'm not sure about vaccine refusal on behalf, on, by adults on behalf of themselves. But adults will say, you know what, I am not raising an autistic child. I just don't need experience. And I think what they're going to do is they're going to just vaccine, avoid the vaccine, and do whatever they have to. 
The next prediction is that now that all uh, medical records, or most of them, are electronic medical records, uh, and they're essentially online, I predict that hackers will create fake vaccine records for everyone so that it is impossible to tell who is vaccinated and who is not. So we can look to see um, an incredible increase in fake vaccine records. Right now, I don't think it's a felony to write a false vaccine record. It's just that people are so obedient and never crosses their mind. And if you look at vaccine records, they are just basically a um, piece of pretty cheap paper um, emblazoned with the uh, stamp of a clinic or whatever somewhere. And piles of these blank cards are left really in plain public view. And so all one needs is to show one of these cards filled out to indicate that the vaccines were administered. So again, I think we're going to find hackers creating fake electronic vaccine records for everyone. And I think that we may find private citizens creating their own private records. The next thing I think we're going to see in this coming year, we've already seen a little bit of it, but I think it's going to get really out of control. I'm not sure what the answer to this is going to be, but hackers and identity thieves are going to begin to construct false identities using fake electronic health This is really going to be um, important because your health record, you know, with your, your name, which of course is actually, believe it or not, your name is irrelevant. Um, but when you have a health record that has your biometric data in it, which is your height, your weight, your age, uh, the drugs that you're taking, uh, your blood levels, whether it's a cholesterol level, sodium level, glucose level, whatever, these biometrics are so specific to you that a person can literally completely impersonate you. Of course, the last rock is to even allow your doctor to put your picture in the health record, and that would be complete. And then you would have an identification record that is um, tighter even than um, a passport or other such documentation. So I think we will see the rise of electronic health records in terms of their importance in identifying people. I think we'll also see the rise of the importance in um, their use by hackers. And this would be the black cat hackers who would literally steal your identity. You thought it was something when you got your uh, social security number stolen or credit card number stolen, whatever. Imagine if someone steals your height, weight, next of kin, employment, and address, and a few other uh, personal choice pieces of information. So I predict that that is going to be um, a huge area of concern as we see these crimes progress. And obviously, the only way to prevent a hacker from stealing your electronic health records is to, well, not have any electronic health. So there you go. The next prediction for 2016 is heart patients will follow Clinton's lead, uh, that's Bill Clinton, the former president, and resort to diet and fire their cardiologist. Yes, sir, Bob. Fire their cardiologist. I'm just talking to a person earlier this morning who uh, went to a cardiologist who had the abnormal rhythm. The cardiologist gave him a drug. 
and he developed a thyroid problem. And he's been with his cardiologist for 10 years. And at no point did his cardiologist tell him his thyroid problem was from the drug, even though it's a well-known fact, which, of course, I easily found by just, well, checking the package insert. So um, cardiologists as a specialty, the reason that between 800 and 900,000 Americans every year die from heart disease is actually the cardiologist. Not so much the actual disease itself, because the truth of the matter is, if you have a heart attack, your chances of dying are less than 5%. Less than 5%. Go check it out on .gov. That's your chances of dying of a heart attack. And depending, if you believe the U.S. News and World Report, it's down to 3.7% if you delay therapy. So believe who you want, but your chances of dying from a heart attack are a little bit higher than your chances of dying by chance alone. In other words, in medicine, we say something is attributable to chance if it happens with a frequency of less than 5%. So if you have a heart attack and then you die, chances of dying after a heart attack are basically 5% or less. And so one could deduce that heart attacks basically are not deadly. In other words, the medical intervention is what is more deadly than heart attacks. So, um, We'll see more patients understanding this, getting a grip on this, and literally fleeing from their cardiologist. The next prediction, this is a, uh, this is an area that, uh, one of my favorites, and this is Ebola. Yes, Ebola. I predict that there will be a new launch of the false flag Ebola epidemic. And this one is going to be a beast. It's going to be a beast. As my hairdresser back in the ghetto of Snigley would say, you hear me? You hear me? Mark this one down. This is a good one. Uh, this was the lead for doctors, December 16, 2014, alert. Ebola cases up dramatically in the last four weeks. Now, get this. How can Ebola cases be up in the last four weeks? Up from where? It's a contagious disease, isn't it? Yeah, it's a contagious disease. Where does this outbreak come from? <laughs> As my helper here in panel would say, I don't know. So, What's going on then is we now have a disease outbreak without a source. And they're saying 300 cases per 100,000. That's three cases per thousand. This is, this is not, even, not even 10%. So total cases included suspected cases, probable cases, and confirmed cases. So if you have a case count that includes suspected cases, you got a lot of negatives in there. Probable cases, you got a lot of negatives there. And confirmed cases, we won't even mention the method of confirmation. It doesn't even include identifying the virus. And so what's happened then is if you have Ebola cases up dramatically in the last week, all you need to do is change your classification process for suspected and probable cases. Right. And as we talked about before, 
Ebola is simply a foodborne illness characterized by nausea, vomiting, fever, and diarrhea. Period. Done. End of discussion. That's it. And 48 million Americans suffer from that description of symptoms every single year. And you might be very interested to know that out of the 48 million people who get those symptoms every year, fewer than 8,000 die of it. Yeah, right. No, this is, this is a very uh, benign illness. Um, it has a death rate, you know, less than, less than 1%. That your chances of dying in any particular year are less if you have uh, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. I guess because your body spits out the offending agent rather than letting it make a home and kill you. So what's happening here then is the Ebola epidemic is being relaunched at least to the document on December 16th. So we can expect a relaunch to the public. And uh, Liberia reports 509 cases, Sierra Leone, 748 cases. And the key thing here is that the suspected and the probate cases, probable cases, are being combined with the confirmed cases. And this is an outrageously unacceptable uh, method of tracking anything. And obviously, uh, simply a way to uh, create hysteria especially among doctors. Then for us doctors, they give us a picture of a clinic, which looks absolutely dismal. The floor is a, the dirt floor. The walls are uh, whitewashed, damaged uh, cement. The shelves are wood boards held up by brackets, heaving in the center. They have barely any medicines on them. Uh, and of course, you look at this. Of course, there's no humans in this picture. In other words, I guess the implication is there, is, there are no healthcare workers, you just have a room full of drugs and people can walk in and take what they think they might need. Um, but you have to stack this up with 80,000 people leaving West Africa by plane were screened for Ebola. The screening, obviously, is a disease that that's what nausea, vomiting, fever, and diarrhea. That's it. That's it. That's the whole disease. And so they were screened by whether or not they had a fever and whether or not they had any of these symptoms in the past uh, week or so. So these people were screened, 80,000 people. And long story short, when I got through testing who they thought they should test and blah, 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 zero cases were confirmed out of 80,000 people leaving Sierra Leone. Now, I find it hard to believe that in an epidemic situation, there was not one person with a latent case of Ebola, if indeed Ebola exists. And so this is what the doctors are being told, and um, they're monitoring CDC workers for possible Ebola exposure in laboratory error. Um, experimental drug may stop vascular leaking Ebola. Uh, timeline, the world's largest outbreak. And again, if you include in an outbreak all suspected cases, um, you know, you might as well just have bone pointing or, um, you know, like if you played a little game as a kid, you know, who's got cooties? You just point your finger at someone and say, oh, he's got cooties. And so this is what's going on with the um, Ebola outbreak. Now, why is it so important that the um, Ebola outbreak be revived. The Ebola outbreak must be revived. 
and raising the Ebola outbreak must be revised. It's because of the vaccine for Ebola must be sold. And so this is very, very important. Very, very important. And so here's the paragraph on that. Although a vaccine against Ebola with virus disease is the biggest hope for 2015, several vaccines that recently became available or will become available early in the year has the potential to save thousands of lives in the United States. Now, let's just relax here. How can a vaccine save thousands of lives if you don't even have thousands of people dying from something every year, right? And everyone knows the vaccines are not 100% effective. And everyone knows vaccines themselves cause death. So we got a little hitch in our logical giddy up here. So because the vaccine for Ebola is still under development, because the uh, plan is to launch it, then obviously you have to um, revise the false flag. You cannot allow the false flag to die um, just because there's no evidence of the disease. It's ridiculous. And so here we see uh, another uh, headline, December 11th, which is right before the other article. Ebola vaccine trial halted temporarily after joint pain. So the Ebola vaccine is giving people joint pains. These people were healthy, asymptomatic people. And they went, no, 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 no. These joint pains are from the vaccine. I don't think so. And if you read any vaccine pamphlet or brochure, all vaccines cause joint pains. It's just one of those things. Because what happens, the vaccine injects you with very small particles that are capable of getting caught in your joint. So what happens here, okay, so they're going to stop this trial. They stop the Ebola vaccine trial. That's good. But what are they going to do next? Well, they've got to get another trial going, of course. And what are they going to do this time? Well, they've got to have the trial in China or India or someplace where they can selectively report their, um, their outcome. So the problem is, um, you know, they didn't pick the right location for their vaccine trial. I'll just read you a paragraph from this. Scientists reported on November 26th in the New England Journal of Medicine, we believe them, right? They say it's the truth, that another version of experimental GSK, that's uh, GalactoSmithKline vaccine, caused no serious side effects and produced an immune response in all 20 healthy volunteers to receive it in an early stage trial. Okay, so you have a second vaccine that they're going to launch through which is the first vaccine. Um, and what they're going to do is they're going to, um, then they have to relaunch the false flag Ebola. Then they have to get people to fear Ebola more than the vaccine side effects and feel that it's worth it. So this is very much like declaring somebody HIV positive and getting them to take the uh, deadly drug. So this is the plan for 2015. We can expect another rollout of Ebola. And uh, here on the doctor website, you guys probably haven't heard about it yet. Healthcare worker in Scotland diagnosed with Ebola. So um, we doctors are being saturated with Ebola news. Even though the news has died down in the public uh, sphere, it is live and well in the doctor's sphere, and we are being inundated with it. 
And oh, FDA approves Roach Ebola test for emergency use. We now have another Ebola test, um, probably unreliable for Ebola use. So let's see what we have. This is hot off the press. This is like momentarily, 7.30 of the day right now. It just came through a minute ago. This is a Zurich. Roche Holding AG, the U.S. Health Reg Regulators, approved the Ebola test for emergency use in response to the world's outbreak of the disease in West Africa. It's approved Roche's Ebola there recombinant RCT-PCR test. What is it? Recombinant means genetically modified uh, material is used in the test. PCR is polymerase chain reaction, which means the test has the ability to amplify and multiply particles present. So there's not enough particles present. Now, I do mean particles, not virus, but a fraction or a piece or a fragment of the virus. This test has the ability to take a fragment, multiply it to uh, a thousand of those fragments, and then measure what it created. Which and basically is no reflection of how many particles there were to start with. So they're going to use this test, uh, inherently unreliable test. And when I say inherently unreliable, I mean the technique, the recombinant technology, combined with the amplification technology, leads to a very high uh, false negative and false positive rate. Uh, for use on patients with signs and symptoms of Ebola virus infection, the Swiss drug maker said. And this test is positive in just over three hours. Tell them to detect the virus quickly so treatment can start as soon as possible. Now, they're only using this in symptomatic people. And the reason for this, of course, is if you use it in a person who looks healthy and feels healthy, they're going to say, you know what? I feel great. I think I'm going to refuse that intervention right now. I don't want any intervention. And if that test is positive, why don't we just wait and see if I get symptoms? Because we know that Ebola does not have the ability to kill people who are asymptomatic. So with Ebola, you don't die unless and until you have diarrhea and vomiting. So a person who never gets diarrhea and vomiting, even if they test positive for the virus, let's say, they don't have the ability, one, to spread it because it's spread by vomitus and diarrhea, and two, they're not going to die of it themselves. So the person represents no threat at all, the person who is without symptoms and has or harbors the virus. So all right, so the Ebola uh, false flag is going to be relaunched. The reason it has to be relaunched is because GlaxoSmithKline.com vaccine and Roche Holding AG has got to sell Ebola tests. And so you can imagine um, the revenue of testing 80,000 people for Ebola, none of whom have it because, of course, one, it doesn't really exist, and two, the test is designed to detect it anyway. So there you have it. Um, again, many people say, oh, I don't have to worry about this because only people who have nausea, vomiting, or vomiting and diarrhea and fever are going to be tested. Well, that's 48 million Americans every year. 48 million Americans every year. And this test is designed to turn up positive. 
will, will be positive for some people. And of course, there'll be false positives, but that doesn't matter. It will still um, sell vaccines, you know, people who are afraid, and it will still sell testing. Then if we want to just extend the arm of the police state, then we can expect this testing to be uh, mandatory and compulsory. The next big prediction, and this is a whopper, this is a whopper, microbiome importance is appreciated by the medical profession and moves begin to corrupt the microbiome of every citizen via vaccines and chemtrails. All right, all right, I know, you guys want the English translation. First of all, what's a microbiome? The microbiome is a microscopic um, organism, the living creatures who live inside your body. And these organisms do a lot of stuff to actually help you. And what's now being discovered is that these organisms live in your intestines. Now, we're just going to make it, I'm going to be really blunt with you. This is poo. We're talking about poo here. Um, this is literally the spare parts cabinet your body goes to when it has to fix or repair an organism to heal something. And so this microbiome is becoming, it's becoming, to be understood just how important this is. Every time you take an antibiotic, you destroy your microbiome. Basically, you destroy the spare parts tool cabinet that your body uses to repair your heart, your kidneys, or your lungs. Yeah, get that. And so then, if the microbiome stays healthy, then the person stays healthy and needs no healthcare. So we can expect then that the medical profession, medical industrial complex, or whoever's running things um, will create more and more vaccines to be given to more and more people with less and less reason. And what the vaccines do? Vaccines destroy the microbiome. That's what they do. They destroy the microbiome. And chemtrails. What do chemtrails do? Destroy the microbiome. They have a whole bunch of uh, organisms in the chemtrails. They have chemicals in the chemtrails. These organisms and chemicals destroy your body's ability to heal itself. I guess you could say it's a biological warfare. So the importance of the microbiome will be appreciated and attempts will be made to collect it. The next thing that's going to happen is citizens, that's people like you listeners, are going to realize the importance of their own microbiome. This is poo, we're talking about poo here. In curing their loved ones from devastating disease. And what kind of devastating disease? Antibiotic-induced illnesses which kill over 100,000 Americans in a year. So if you count the MRSA, poll is 48,000. Then you count the um, C. difficile poll of 30,000, brings you to 70,000. Then you have the vancomycin system enterococcus, and it goes on and on. And the total poll is about 100,000 deaths a year. That's a lot of deaths. And so citizens realizing then that they can actually cure their loved ones with their own food are going to start at first primitive techniques. But they're going to start becoming very, um, very interested in this. And they're going to start sharing their food, and people are going to start getting better. Irritable bowel will be a disease of the past. People won't even know about it. Irritable bowel? What's your problem? Just borrow some food. Um, an antibiotic induced illness, people will become more sophisticated. So go to my website, vitalitycapsules.com, get the free report on how to not need any more antibiotics. So we're going to do that to avoid antibiotics. And then they're also going to um, refuse antibiotics 
And if they get uh, an antibiotic-induced illness, they're going to resort to a coup transplant, transplant. Now, how can you get an antibiotic illness if you don't even take antibiotic prescriptions? The answer is the meat supply in the United States is laced with antibiotics. So what's going to happen? The FDA is going to take aggressive steps to prohibit the sharing of poos, much the way we see the prohibitions, prohibitions against plants, certain plants, and alcohol, and other things. So we can expect, um, actually, much the way they've regulated into existence, compulsory um, health insurance for, for individuals and for uh, authors. And so we can expect then that there will be aggressive steps taken to um, regulate this coup. And right. now is a good time for us to start taking questions. I have questions here in the uh, chat room. So we're going to gather these together so I don't have to search all over heaven for them. And then I'll be able to answer those questions. And then people who are listening online can just click their, um, their button. I think it's number one. And ask questions. All right, there's a lot of interesting questions here in the chat room. Questions are so advanced, I don't even know if I understand the question. But I will ask for clarification. I'm sure they'll get it. All right, let's see. Let me make sure I got all my, all my predictions done first. FDA takes aggressive tests. Okay, final prediction. This is a big one. Hold on to your seats. People will refuse health insurance in large numbers as they realize that they are unhealthy because of their insurance. So people will refuse health insurance. What does this mean? This means creativity will erupt all over the United States as people no longer seek employment in order to have health benefits. They will instead start their own businesses in record numbers they will prosper and happiness will break out throughout the land. And so in other words, people will understand or realize that the health benefits are really a very expensive ticket to the killing field, uh, their own killing field. So I expect that in uh, 2015, this realization will occur to more and more people as they realize that their health insurance is standing between them and health, not making health easier to be paid. Okay, so. Okay, so here are some questions. First question. If you cook the meat, does that destroy the injected antibiotics? No, it does not. Okay. Um, does running The science fiction has something to do with bringing about certain changes. The answer is yes, because there's something called forward pacing. The forward pacing is, for example, if you have a horse and you want the horse to go in a certain direction, then you inform the horse, this is the direction you're going to go in, let's take a few steps in this direction, and give them a few dry rehearsals. And that's what sci-fi is. 
sci-fi basically um, affords um, people who are controlling the debate, who are putting on the propaganda to say, hey, here's a sci-fi version. Of course, it's going to be um, slanted towards making their particular outcome you know, more, um, more attractive. All right, let's see, next question. <laughs> okay. How can clove oil soothe my gums but feel like it's burning a hole in my outer skin? Your gums and your outer skin are two different types of skin. So your gums are what's called mucosa, and they are water. They're covered with water. And so the effect of the clove oil on the gums is greatly blunted uh, as intense. Your skin is mostly fat, and clove oil is a fat. So it penetrates more readily, and you get that burning uh, sensation. Okay. So... Do we have to create more illusions to look like we're still playing the game, or is it time to just say no? That's a good question. I think each person has to work with their own comfort level. Some people are okay with just saying no. Other people feel that they have to produce the proper false documents to appear to be cooperating when they're not. And so, you know, I, I talk to people and I find that people are so ingrained in the concept of being law-abiding citizens. Even if the law is something that's going to destroy them, to harm them, to make them poor, of course, to benefit nobody, um, they feel obligated to obey laws. And they even feel that it's cheating to cherry-pick the laws they want to obey for their own benefit. So obviously, if you have two conflicting laws, then why not obey the one that's more favorable to you? And so people have a hard time with that and really object. So for people like that, which appears to be the greater number of people, um, I think options are going to materialize as people realize that this isn't just a vaccine. This is a destruction of the next generation. This is just a vaccine, but this is... A, the the total destruction of their of their progeny and of what they leave behind. So I think if people understand the importance of what's going on here, they're going to find more creative ways. And it doesn't really matter if you create or corrupt all vaccine records so that none of them can be relied upon for anything, or um, if you have a fake record or or whatever. I think the problem is that people themselves personally feel um, very negative about it, and they condemn themselves. Okay. And so someone said, if I had a friend or family member dies while using alternative treatment methods, and the hospital coroner finds blah, 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 blah in the system, um, the hospital coroner is not going to look for those things. And so there is no way, they, this, all this um, CSI stuff 
where they um, spend months and years doing chemical tests on a corpse to find the obscure murderer. It's just simply not the case. It's not true. The resolution rate for murders, let alone natural death, is very low. So, so if you have a friend who dies while using alternative treatment, first of all, they're going to die at home. Now, there's a problem. So you would need the person to have signed some type of agreement saying that they consider the, the outcome and the choices of seeking medical attention or not, and that they decided that if God wants them to die, then that's what they'll do, rather than go to the hospital. And that's, that's it. And then, of course, that they release individuals who may have been found responsible, blah, blah, blah. Now, when I was practicing medicine, I had a very controversial posture on this. I went so far as to make a public announcement that in the event of my murder, I did not want my murder to be investigated. I don't want my murder investigated. I do not want the perpetrators, whoever they may be, brought to justice. Please do not do that. Who would investigate them? Why would you say that? I mean, I mean, you're putting your life in danger. No, anybody will kill you. Well, let's get real here. The, if my murder is investigated, chances are actually greater that they're going to arrest someone who had nothing to do with it and throw them in jail for life. So what's the, I mean, what's the benefit? Now you've destroyed two lives. You know, one, me, because I'd be dead. But two is the, the person they would pin it on who didn't even do it. So, um, you know, that, I mean, it, it's going to take that level of awareness on the part of people. This system can only collapse by a total loss of faith. So only if the public loses faith in this system will it collapse. It will not collapse through litigation. It will not collapse through legislation. It will only collapse through a fundamental change in the beliefs of the victims, that would be you, and the perpetrators. But first, is always a change in the beliefs of victims. I mean, even slavery, we like to think, that the Civil War had something to do with the getting rid of slavery. But quite frankly, if you look around today, we look at these students with their lifetime student debt. We just have a new generation of slaves. We don't call it slavery, but it's still slavery. And the masters are more, or I should say, are less, less visible. All right, we have a question here on the Hi, you're on the air. What's your question? So let's take a look at some more questions. Did they, I read that they will or did eliminate a religious exemption. Any opinion? Yes, there will be an attempt to eliminate exemptions. I think the first step and that has already begun by giving an exemption only to Muslims. I think the president gave an exemption to Obama. And what this does is create a sense of division. And so rather than people saying, you know what, that's a good idea. I think everyone should be exempt. Instead, people say, oh, I hate that group. They're getting favoritism. That's not fair. Everyone should have to do it. And so I think people should rise above that and say, hey, you know, that's a good idea that we have one group exempt. Let's just spread, spread the love here and make more groups exempt. So that's really what uh, I think needs to be done. And people need to absolutely ignore these obvious attempts to just, you know, divide people and make them, you know, full of hate. So I just need to mention that this is Slate Radio Network and the Rainbow Soul Channel and it's Healing with Dr. Daniel. And so what else? Is, we have time for one more. 
Okay, so um, Kristen says, I could use a false vaccine record for my children. Yes, and so I think once people understand what a vaccine record is, they'll just make up their own. Um, it's very simple to do. And it's very simple. Okay, that is it for tonight. We will see you again next week. And the topic to be determined, so watch your emails for more information.